Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January 22nd, 2013, and this is episode 1059 of the Survival Podcast. i got a good one for you today. Uh, the evolving meaning of the self-sufficient lifestyle. You know, what was self-sufficiency for Jeremiah Johnson is not what self-sufficiency today. No matter how much uh, people try to romanticize history or the pioneering days or whatever, lots we can learn from them, but there's a lot of things available today that weren't available then, and frankly, I'm grateful for it. And there's a lot of politics in the world. This is the only, way I can use, the only word I can use to describe it that are not going to go away economic realities that are not going to go away that weren't present a hundred years ago. And frankly, I'm not happy about that. But those two things, the good and the bad, exist. To deny them is to deny the reality on the ground. And that means becoming self-sufficient by denying those things is all but impossible. So we're going to talk about how you be self-sufficient in this world today. How that blends with the prepper lifestyle and how your mindset's more important than your stuff. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Survival Gear Bags, run by Kelly John Doe. Really great group of people over there uh, that run Survival Gear Bags. Good, good stuff, man. Um, he found me the bag I've been looking for for years. Uh, I'm a fan of the Kel-Tec Kel Sub 2000. And actually, we're going to have this bag in the Survival Podcast Gear Shop soon. But he found me a bag that my Caltech actually fits into, that my big laptop actually fits into, that I could walk down the street with, load it up, and it would look like I'm carrying a normal messenger bag, just a normal laptop bag. I've been looking for something like that forever. Hell, I beat up John Willis over at SOE Tactical Gear for over a year to build me a Mookie War bag, one of his Mookie War bags that would fit that form factor for me, just a bigger one. I offered to pay him twice what he built. And he just wouldn't do it. I couldn't. Kelly found me the bag. That, that's what I'm telling you, man. The guy's got the gear, and he's got the stuff to go in the gear. He's a long-time listener to the show. In fact, Survival Gear Bags was actually founded as, as, as by being inspired by the Survival Podcast. He found this podcast. He started listening to it. He started getting engaged with people on the forum and said, hey, I can serve this market. Fulfillment's my business. And he'll do that for you. So check him out today, survivalgearbags.com. Remember, they do give a discount to everybody in the member support brigade as well. So if you're a member support brigade person, log into your benefits page before you buy anything to see if there's a discount. Not all of our sponsors do this. Not all of them can, but most of them do. Check it out today, survivalgearbags.com. Save Castle Royals, our next sponsor of the day. Now, I call them the original survival podcast sponsor. And that's because Vic Rontala over there said, I want to sponsor your show. When no, I had no sponsors. And I said, I don't even have a sponsorship program yet, Vic. And I only have like a thousand people listening to the show. And he said, I don't care. I can see where this is going. Let's, let's do something. And I basically said, give me a bit. Give me a bit. Let me put together a program. Let me build the audience a little more. From that period of time, I doubled the audience to about 2,000. And I came up with a program called the Member Support Brigade. And I made their sponsorship coincide with that by doing a discount with them. And their discounts, one of the, to this day, even though they were first, one of the best that we have. They have a discount buyers club of their own. It's forty nine dollars for the rest of your and for the rest of your life, you get discounts on everything they sell. Great deep discounts. It's it's pays for itself. But member support brigade members get it for free. And on top of that, they have everything you could want for your prepping needs. You can check them out. The easy way to remember their website prepared.pro. Yes, .pro. .pro. It's a new uh, domain extension. Actually, not that new. A couple years old. Prepared.pro. But the best way to find Safe Castle, the best way to find Survival Gear Bags, the best way to find all our sponsors, go to the survivalpodcast.com first. Click on their banner in the right-hand margin. And you know you're dealing with someone that actually has my personal endorsement. also want to remember, remind you about 13skills.com. If you're not yet a member of 13skills.com, why not? Get over there. Let's improve our skills together in 2013. And last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You help support my show at a whopping 18.3 cents per episode. Your membership, if you buy anything in this industry, anything in these niches, will pay for itself many times over. And if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, uh, or a first responder like a paramedic, either active duty or prior service, and email me before, before, not after you join, and tell me who you are and what you're doing, 
or who you are and what you did if you're prior service, I will send you a discount code to thank you for your service, and it will save you even more money, and you will pay even less for a membership that already pays for itself. Just my way of saying thank you for your service to our nation and around the world. All right. So with that taken care of, let's get into the main topic of today's show. You know, I, I was kind of like thinking, like, what can I do today? Because today's kind of a special day for me uh, in a really great way and a little bit of a sad way. For over a year and a half, I've used an office uh, to do my show. And I have my great big condenser mic. Some of you guys have actually seen my desk and all from my YouTube videos uh, in the office that I'm in. Horrible wallpaper, but since we were renting the place, I never decided it was worth my money and effort to change the way the interior looks. So there's a little bit of a red hue uh, in my videos. <laughs> and that was probably worth doing it for. But otherwise, it's been fine. But today, I don't know if there'll be any more shows this week. And you may not get a show till Wednesday of next week. I'm not sure. I'm going to do what I can to do some in maybe the truck. The key is getting them uploaded. But um, today a truck is coming to our house, and we're going to be loading stuff for a couple of days. And then somebody's coming to pick the truck up and drive it down to Texas. And we're loading up the dogs, and we're heading to the new homestead, three acres. And as close as I'm going to kind of give you guys to the general area of where it is, it's near the Eagle Mountain Lake area. That's, that's as specific as I'm going to be with giving away my location. It's not way out in the middle of nowhere. It's out in a semi-rural area northwest of Fort Worth near Eagle Mountain Lake. That's as specific as I'm going to get. And um, that's all good and well. And the moving is it's, it's stressful. It's really stressful. Um, my, last night, and it was kind of a joke, my wife was packing yet another box in the kitchen. And she goes, I changed my mind. I don't want to do this anymore. And she started laughing. So it was a joke. But it was almost like, I, it's not worth it, you know, but it really is. But today is the last episode that will be broadcast from the office, which has become known as the Ant Hill. So the Ant Hill is going to become somebody else's Ant Hill, and the new Ant Hill will be one of the rooms in our new home. So the office is moving back into the home, which I actually think is going to help me do a better job for you guys. And it fits in nicely with what we're going to talk about today, because what I'm going to talk about is how to be more self-sufficient uh, in the modern age. And... I did what I did with getting an office while we were, you know, spending most of our time here because it was the only way to make it work. Um, I just couldn't get the internet connection that I needed to where our homestead was to be able to do the show. Well, the show's my business, right? So, you know, I went to having to drive to an office every day and, and now I'm not going to have to do that anymore. I'm giving something up for that. Especially, and I've, I've seen this more in the South. Uh, especially the southwest, south central United States, than I do in the northeast. In the northeast, it seems like there's a lot of places that seem like they are absolutely in the middle of flipping nowhere, and you can still get high-speed Internet. Down south, it seems, you move just a little bit outside of these towns and these rural communities, and it's over. There is, you know, you're lucky you get electricity in some areas still around here. You get electricity only because of the law that made them put phone service in, so there was infrastructure to put the electrical lines on. And you want water, you got a well. You want a sewer, you got to put in a septic system. I mean, and you want high-speed Internet, you either use satellite or you get nothing, and it just doesn't work for a business. So when we're relocating this time, I decided that I didn't want to do that anymore, that I could take the rental cost of the, of the, the office and the underlying cost of a mortgage and combine them and end up right back where I was financially, but not have to drive to an office every day, not spend the money on fuel, and not be dependent on somebody else. Because let's say my landlord at the end of my lease decided we don't want to rent to you anymore. Right? So it just seemed to make sense to consolidate back. And, and, and I want you to think about that. One, because it's a landmine, or landmine, almost not a landmine, a landmark event for the show. It's another turning in our history, another evolution in the history of the Survival Podcast, going from car to home office to big office back to a home office uh, and, and moving forward the entire time. But because it's going to fit well with the concepts that I'm going to give you today. And that's why I want to tell you that like the first thing that we need to do if we want to build self-sufficiency in our lives today is not turn our back on technology. Uh, I can't tell you how many times, especially when I talk to people who are big into primitive skills and things like that, that people will crap on the concept of a GPS and say, I don't need a GPS. I don't use technology. Really, what do you use? All I can use a sun compass. That's technology. That is technology. It's a technology that changed the way people navigate. I navigate with stellar navigation. Great. That's also technology. That's where we got a little device called the sextant from. You know, and when they say, well, my technology is not dependent on, your, te your technology, if you're using a sun compass, is dependent on the sun shining. 
right? And, and, and that's about as reliable as whether or not a GPS is going to work. Now, am I suggesting that it's not a good idea to learn how to build and use a sun compass or learn how to just have some basic stellar navigation with a bearing on the north star is always north and how to identify it if you're in, you know, far enough into the northern hemisphere where you can see the daggone thing? No. Um, am I saying in any way that we should avoid Primitive skills, hard skills, how to build a fire uh, from friction fire, from using a friction fire sled to using a hand drill, a bow drill, a flint and steel, anything like that. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying much like when you were in school, right? when you were in grade school, like, like first grade, second grade, like way down back in the deep recesses of your mind if you're an older person like me, you know, in your 40s or, or older, um, Try to think back and remember one of the first things that you had to do in mathematics was learn how to memorize addition, subtraction, and once you did that, then it was multiplication and division, 1 through 12. That was kind of the core. And once you could do that, then they could say, let me show you how to do a complex multiplication problem like 43 times 15. And you take this and you add a zero, and you make two lines and you add them back together. But everything you needed to know was built into... That learning your times and multiplication, addition, subtraction up to 12. And you might have wondered, why do I have to memorize all this crap? But then when you see it put together, if anybody bothered to explain it to you when you were a kid, other than you need to learn because I said so, right? If anybody explained it, you start to realize that this, this is like the building blocks, right? And then you would learn division. It's a little more complicated, long division and remainders, and you get to do a decimal or a fraction, fractions and decimals and back and forth. But it still came down to if you knew this, this basic formula, of knowing addition, subtraction, multiplication, and, and division, 1 through 12, you were good to go. You could do anything. You could do anything. Because everything is built on that. Then one day, somebody dropped into your hot little hand a calculator. And you started being able to do things that would take you five minutes before in five seconds. But let me tell you something. There's two things that work there. One, if the calculator dies or somebody takes it away, you can still get the answer. And two, by knowing the mechanical procedure behind the operation, you're much faster and efficient with the calculator. And when you do something in error with the calculator and it doesn't make sense, your mind tells you, I need to do that one again. That one doesn't make sense. Then later in life, maybe you found a little program called Excel with a spreadsheet in it. And then you started being able to add up entire columns left and right, fill things in in sequential order, build your own formulas. But all of this went back to the basics. And that's how we have to look at self-sufficiency and technology. It's great to be able to get into a car that tells you where the nearest restaurant is that you like and how to get there. But you should be able to do it on foot if you have to. And that's the world we need to live in. The people that say all technology sucks, let me put it to you this way. When the Native Americans first started having conflicts with the white man, they looked at his firearms and said, our bows are superior. But they became a much more lethal force when they kept using their bows and their knives and their clubs and added to it the white man's firearms. It became a much more deadly enemy. If you want to fight a battle, and in, in many instances, when it comes to trying to be self-sufficient in this world, we are fighting a battle. We're fighting a battle with a society that has told us to just embrace everything new and let go of everything else and let somebody else fix your problems for you. Give away your independence and liberty in exchange for security and convenience. So if you're going to fight that battle... You have to use the foundational building blocks, the traditional methods, the traditional skills, the traditional knowledge, the hard skills, the soft skills, but you don't turn away the technology. You blend their technology with your reality and knowledge of the past and how the technology got here in the first place and the underlying underpinning ways the technology works, and then you are a superior warrior in your own battle for independence and liberty. And you better understand that if you're embarking on a quest for personal independence and personal liberty, you're going to have to be a warrior. Much of what you crave was taken away. It was taken away through ignorance and tyranny both. And ignorance is easy to reclaim. You restore knowledge, you reclaim. But that which is taken by tyranny is never relinquished from the tyrant. It must be seized from his hand. Sounds like a really eloquent quote, but I've just made it up. Okay, But that's I really believe that. 
That which has been taken from you by tyranny must be seized back from the hand of the tyrant. You, 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 he will not give it to you. He's a tyrant. Tyrants don't give shit away. They keep it. We live in a police state. You don't build a police state and then decide you don't want to use it. That's not how it works. You know, you don't build anything without using it. We built an atomic bomb. Maybe we only ever dropped two of them, but we dropped them. And you know what? We dropped more than two. Right? We set quite a few of them off just to make sure that they still worked and that they were getting bigger and more powerful and more importantly, so other people would see them go off and go, oh crap. And so did the Soviets and other nations built these things and detonated them. You don't build anything unless you have a plan to use it on some level. Even the threat of it. Okay? This is the society we live in today. And if we turn our back on technology, then we're, 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 you know, we're, we're like the, the, the gallant, uh, Polish cavalry that, that, you know, gave the Polish people their reputation for being so dumb. You see, there was a Polish cavalry with wooden lances that charged a tank brigade against Germany. Didn't work out very well. Um, the reality was that there was a lot of espionage going on and there were some armored vehicles that were made out of basically thin wood for training purposes and somebody got a wire crossed and decided that maybe if you told the men that's what this was, they would attack and maybe they would figure a way out and it didn't work. So was the, was the intent noble and gallant? Does it take a lot of courage to see any kind of mechanized machine and sit atop a horse with a wooden lance and attack it? It takes a lot, but it ain't going to work. You shoot a tank with a bazooka, at least in that period of time. Today you take it out with something like a tow missile, or at least an AT-4. I mean, a law rocket is pretty underrated, under, underpowered for what you're trying to do. An AT-4, man, you better hit right and you better get out of dodge fast or you're going to end up with a turret swinging around on you. You might disable the vehicle, but if he spins that turret and figures out where you fired from, you're in deep crap. All right? So we use technology because that's what for lack of a better word, the enemy is using technology. But how do guerrilla forces win a war? They use the same technology and ancient technology together. They have a better understanding of the landscape and the history and the reality of what's going on. They blend in to their surroundings. They blend in with people that the enemy would call friendlies. They become unidentifiable And they continue to advance their mission and their agenda. This is what you have to do. Now, don't be too literal. I'm not talking about actually becoming some kind of revolutionary war, you know, uh, uh, insurgent type. God forbid the day we ever have to go to that level. That means the Constitution has been set aflame. And when the Constitution has been set aflame completely and there are no, there's no recourse left... Uh, through actual procedure that our republic was founded on. There's no, elections are not honored in any way, shape, or form. Guy wins and they just say, you don't win anyway, and they shoot him in the head. When stuff like that starts to happen, then the Constitution's aflame and we gotta go there. This is an analogy for today. This is how you have to live to create a pocket of self-sufficiency around yourself and around your own community and develop that. You have to be a shining beacon of liberty and at the same time, in some ways, be incognito. It's the perfect recipe. And the first thing you're going to have to do, if you really want this, and I, I know that sometimes people get tired of hearing me say this, but it's so daggone important I have to. I promise to keep my comments on it to about three minutes or less today, but you got to become debt-free. Um, other than debt on property, which has at least an underlying value that it will maintain and hold, we need to stay away from debt. There's times to take a debt on a vehicle because the vehicle enables us to do certain things and at certain times in our lives we realize that we need a vehicle that's really a new, well-kept vehicle so that we can get to work. And we have to look at that vehicle, though, like a business expense. So if we're going to finance a vehicle because we can't buy it for cash, we need to say, what is the value of this vehicle? What does this vehicle return to me and being able to get to work or deliver something to my customers or whatever that is? And we have to start analyzing that like an accountant would and just look at it a little bit differently. And if you do that, you'll find yourself spending less and getting better financing terms over shorter periods of time. Or you may even find yourself in certain unique situations leasing a vehicle. But at the same time, acquiring a vehicle that you actually own and have no payments on. Okay. That's how we have to start looking at that. But, the, but every other form of debt is evil. 
It destroys your life, and it ties you to the very system that you're trying to extricate yourself from. It's like saying, you know what I want to do? I'm going to break out of jail. I'm going to break out of jail. But they have this chain around my ankle, and I'm like a dog tethered to a pin in the ground, right? And I'm going to, but I, all I got to do is get outside of the gate. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start working in the metal factory and making chain links. And I'm going to make the chain so long that I can get out of the prison and be gone. Now, let's ignore the fact that they could follow the chain and pull you back in with it. Let's say they said, fine, he wants to do that. He can do that. You're never free of the prison. You can only go so far. You're always held back. Okay? And hell, they could hook something up to that chain, and every time you moved it, have you, have you, you do work for them. That's exactly what that is. It's a long-ass chain that makes you think you're free while you're tethered to a prison. And you've got to get out of that, or you're not going to be able to do the other things. So you have to have a plan for it. You pay off what you have. You stop spending what you don't have. That's it. There's no magic formula. I'm not even going to give you the basic debt snowball formula today. If you want that, go listen to Dave Ramsey. He says it over and over and over and over again and not much else. Okay? So I'm done on the debt. I just have to put that into this. The next thing is you have to really start looking at where you're going to live. I talked about this a lot yesterday, but, man, there's states that have taken a stance so tyrannical in opposition to individual and personal liberty that I really can't see why anybody is willing to live in them anymore. I don't care what you pay me. I can find a job outside of New York or California or Illinois uh, or Massachusetts. I mean, those are, you know, four. That, and, and I would add five to that. New Jersey. And I was born in New Jersey. You know, it's hard to completely turn your back on a place where you were born. There's Some part of me will always be a Jersey kid, you know? But I, I can't see living there. I can't see why any of you do. And there's millions and millions and millions of you that do. These states have basically said, your money is our money. Your rights are, are, are bequeathed by us, not protected by us. And you have no right to defend yourself. I mean, really, that's, that's the way that these states are headed. And by the way, we're going to destroy our own economies. We're going to destroy the pensions of all the people we've promised them to. And we're just going to tax you more while we do it. And you're going to like it. And if you don't like it, tough. Well, my response is, I don't like it, tough, fine, I'm leaving. So there's certain places I'd say you've got to get out of. But you have to look at it bigger than that. I think you need to be, when you're looking for where you want to stand your ground, so to speak, a place where people are already kind of moving toward this world, even without knowing it. When I used to fly all over the United States, it struck me how I could determine the affluent neighborhoods from an airplane. Whenever I could see a neighborhood from an airplane, and I saw more pools than not pools, more people in that neighborhood, let's say 60% or more of that neighborhood had pools, I knew they were relatively affluent people. Not necessarily rich, but upper middle income, middle income, well-to-do, probably drove nice cars, low crime rate swimming pools. A little harder to see because they're generally not as easy to see from the air, and that may be good someday, God forbid, but gardens. I think that if you're looking for a place to live, if you can find a place where there's more houses that have gardens than don't, you're on the right track. I think you'll find that 90% of the people there are already of a predisposition to take care of themselves and look after themselves at some level and look after each other. See, if you have a garden, you have to do this thing called go outside. And when you go outside and your neighbor's outside at the same time, you sometimes do this thing called communicate with them and talk to them. And that's what we need. We need neighborhoods, again, where people talk to each other and communicate with each other. And you're going to be able to determine, when you look at a neighborhood, whether that's the case or not. If everybody's yard looks the same, one tree, manicured grass, well-edged, backyard fenced off so you can't see in, but if you do look in the backyard, maybe a swimming pool and some, some rock around it, and a few little ornamental trees and nothing much else, you can probably bet that that place has a homeowner's association, and you're never going to be free there. Not all the time, but you can probably bet on it. You can also probably bet that if you walk up to the average person that lives in that neighborhood, knock on their door and say, Hi, uh, I'm considering buying a home here, and I was just wondering what you think of your neighbors. They'll say, Oh, they're wonderful. They keep to themselves and don't bother anyone. 
Great. That means that as long as everybody obeys the rules and makes sure their grass is cut to the right height and always level, then nobody bothers anybody. If nobody parks the wrong car in the front yard, then nobody bothers anybody. But as soon as anybody breaks the rules, they're considered a troublemaker. Since they've pushed all the troublemakers out with their oppressive HOA, they like everybody. And then you say... Really? That's great. Who do you like here? Who do you, you know, kind of talk to? And they'll probably know the names of the people that live on both sides of them, and that's about it. And if you see like a nice house down at the end of the road, just didn't say, hey, who lives in that place? That place looks really nice. They'll probably go, I, I don't know. I see him once in a while, but I don't know his name. Okay, That's not where you want to live. It really isn't. That's not where you want to live. And you say, well, self-sufficient, I should be able to make it on my own. But no, you, that's not what self-sufficiency is about. Self-sufficiency... It's something done in percentages. Self-reliance we measure in time. This is a difference, very important difference. It seems to be not really important, but it is when you're trying to plan your life around a concept. You need to actually understand it. I know it's hard to get, but if you don't understand a concept you're building your life around, you probably won't do it right. So self-reliance is a flashlight and batteries. And if I have 10 sets of batteries, and let's say each set of batteries gives me 10 hours of light from that particular flashlight, then I have 100 hours of self-reliance in light. But it's only self-reliance. It's not self-sufficiency because eventually when the batteries don't work anymore, then I don't have light anymore. It's now gone. Self-sufficiency is if I garden and I grow all my own peppers, and I save all my pepper seeds, and I can always put pepper seeds back in the ground. If I catch enough rainwater every year to do all my irrigation, I don't rely on the grid at all. From a standpoint of peppers and peppers alone, I'm 100% self-sufficient. It's a percentage game. If I look at it from a standpoint of waste, and I build a black soldier fly uh, container, and I put all of the, the waste, like meat and scraps and things like that, that generally doesn't go into a compost facility into there, and a little bit of my compost crop, crop to keep it going, and I compost my waste, but I still have 20 or 30% of my waste that's packaging and materials and stuff I buy or whatever that I can't get rid of on site. I have to have them hauled away. Then if it's 30%, then I'm 70% self-sufficient with regard to dealing with my waste, at least that type of waste. Now, with human waste, if I have a good, well-maintained septic system, I'm 100% self-sufficient with that. If I have composting toilets, I'm 100% self-sufficient with that. If I have a sewer that I pay for, I'm 100% non-self-sufficient with that. It's not necessarily bad. Remember, I'm not saying we get rid of technology. I'm just saying we have to look at that reality. So when we, as soon as we skin the cat, the self-reliance is time-related, then we realize that the more people around us that are self-reliant, the more we can work together, the greater the time quotient becomes. Because if I have batteries that are rechargeable, and you have a generator, and I have a battery backup system, but you don't, you and I as neighbors can work together and greatly extend the lifetime of both of our systems. And the more people we add like that, the greater the extension of our self-reliance time becomes. Self-sufficiency works the same way. If you grow 100% of your own tomatoes and I grow 100% of my own peppers, it's almost inevitable that to grow 100%, you're going to have to grow 150% or more. Now if I have two people living next to each other that each specialize in something and they can barter and exchange surplus, the self-sufficiency of both individual households increases. It doesn't decrease, it increases. We often hear people say, hey, if I put together this really great prepper community, right, like, and we're well-stocked and we have guns and gear and all the equipment we need, and we have like 10 people that say they're going to work together, and they, they, we pre-stock stuff, and we have the ability to grow food, we store food, to, to, to do all this great stuff, the only worry we have is that some of our members will bring people with them when they come. Let me tell you what would happen in a true breakdown scenario. The place like that, as soon as like the whole concept of we're going to fight it out wore off and you realize the reality you're in, people like that would begin to recruit people of value to come be with them. Anybody that's physically able to do anything and wants to be part of the group would be recruited. Now, so that doesn't mean some people wouldn't show up and, and be terminal with a case of the dumbass and be sent packing, but in reality you would be recruiting and growing a group like that. Right? How do I know that? Because every town that's ever been established has followed that pattern to become a ghost town. 
So we need to make community part of our plan, and that blends right in with the location because you don't want a community of assholes. You really don't. And I'm telling you that a lot of our suburban neighborhoods have become communities of assholes by design. See, the people that live there really aren't assholes, but they've been put into a, a, a environment where the only logical result is they're going to behave like assholes towards each other. See, the guy that has his lawn all manicured, right, it's only one in ten of those guys that really are like that, that are out there with freaking snips clipping that one blade of grass until the next mowing, right? It's very few people that really are like that. But they're, they're living that way because it's expected. So as soon as somebody else doesn't do it, like, why do I have to do it if he doesn't have to do it? And the response isn't, I don't, it's he does. That's in their mind. So they start worrying about shit that really doesn't affect them. Why does he have that old truck parked in his driveway? I know if I had that old truck parked in my driveway, somebody would bitch about it. I don't like the way that old truck looks. Right? It's none of your business. It's his driveway. He wants to park a truck there, he can park a truck there. Right? But these, this environment we've created of people that live 100% from the supermarket, they work, they go home, take their kids to activities, they work, they go home, they go to the country club for recreation. This entire, they have rules on top of rules on top of rules. They, they're so in need of rules, regulation, and control, they actually form an additional branch of government to oversee their lives called an HOA. I want you to realize that about people that have HOAs by choice. What they've said is a federal government intruding in our lives, a state government intruding in our lives, a county government intruding in our lives, a city government intruding in our lives. All of those layers of government intruding in our lives and taxing us at every opportunity that they have isn't sufficient. I'd like some more, please. Let's form our own and have additional rules in addition to all these rules from these four primary layers of government that already exist. Let's, let's, just, let's do more than all of this government that we're already paying too much for is doing. And then, then I know, here's a great idea. Let's all have to pay dues in another tax that will self-assess to enforce the rules that we have set because the all, all the rules that were already set weren't sufficient to make us happy. You live around people like that and you start to realize that they're assholes. You have nobody to blame but yourself. Why the hell are you doing it? And I can say the same with states like New York and Illinois. You know, the federal government has already shoved all this crap down our throat. Rules, regulations, and taxes. And you guys go, that's not enough. We need some more. I'd like some more oppression, please. And let's, let's, let's pay for it. Great. So that has to be part of what you're doing. When I was looking for property, the real estate agent that we used had to be taken to the woodshed a few times. Because she would start saying, well, I don't know if you, I, I, I called the agent and there's some people around there that may not be the kind of people you want to live next to. And she started describing, I go, that's me. This exact, what do you mean? That's, well, they have this old truck that's always parked at the end of the driveway. It's like an 18 wheeler that the guy's retired and he hasn't sold it yet and it just sits there and it doesn't look very nice. I'm like, good. So when I park a tractor at the end of my driveway, he won't bitch. But th this is, the mentality that we live in. This is the world we're living in today, where people are more concerned about what other people are doing than themselves. And what we need to do is switch that dynamic to where people are more concerned with helping others than helping themselves. Because here's what happens. If you start to help other people in your community, all of a sudden you become valued, and you get this overflow back of willingness to assist and help you. It's basic karmic law. Whether you believe in that or not, I'm telling you, it doesn't matter whether you believe in it or not, because it works. I talked to one, I can't, I can't remember the comedian, I think it's that Borat guy, right? This one guy I talked to, young guy up in Vermont. I said, well, the government, this and the government guy, he goes, I don't believe in the government. He doesn't quote. So I don't believe in the government. It isn't the government, you know? And I'm like, well, it doesn't matter if you believe in the government. The government believes in you. So it doesn't matter if you believe in karmic law or not. Karmic law applies to you. Univer you can call it universal energy. You can take from any organized faith you want to, or you can use a physics level explanation. But this is a reality. When you do things in a positive Uh, motivation and a positive output, especially in an environment where it's received well, it always comes back with greater than it's put out. 
because it magnifies as it goes through the system. The impact that you have in interacting with one person actually impacts multiple individuals. So there's multiple re return points for that to come back to you. I don't want to get metaphysical or anything with it because you don't have to. It's just how it works. And the only thing required to make that work is that you're in a place where it's well-received. If you try to go to an artsy-fartsy, upper-crusty, nobody-talks-to-anybody neighborhood and start helping your neighbors put in gardens, it's not going to be well-received. They don't like gardens. They probably have a rule against them, specifically in the front yard. And God forbid that that one tree you plant in the middle of your little postage-stamp suburban lot should have apples in it that would fall on the ground and make a mess. Okay? That's not the place to go do this stuff. But if you find the right place to do this stuff, the more you do, the better it gets for you. I'm not saying you can't be a rebel and go do it successfully somewhere. People have done it. But boy, it's harder that way. Boy, it's harder that way. Maybe it's better to be a rebel on the edge, the transitional edge, where it's not quite so lock, stock, and barrel the other direction. I mean, the, the best example I can give of somebody doing it in a place where you wouldn't think it would work would be like the urban farming guys. But they're just going in and buying houses in neighborhoods nobody gives a shit about. Um, and completely changing the entire landscape, buying places that are so cheap you can buy two houses, knock one to the ground, without a mortgage, by the way, knock one to the ground, salvage a lot of parts from it to rehab the other, connect the two yards together and have a bigger yard, and then bring other people in to buy the next house over because they're buying houses for ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars in the inner city of Kansas City. I don't want to live that way, but God bless them for doing it. I sure sell support what they're doing. So it can be done anywhere. That brings me kind of my next point today. We all need to be homesteaders, no matter where you live. With the exception of, I understand, if you live in an apartment, you can only do so much homesteading on a balcony. Okay, And, and I would tell you that for long-term self-sufficiency, you need a castle to defend. You, you need property that you own. All this crap about, well, you know, you're better off renting, property's a bad investment today. It's gonna, I, Listen, listen. <laughs> There will always be some sort of an economy. There will be always be a way for people to earn money. There will always be a way for people to conduct commerce with each other. There will always be that because there always has. From the first time somebody with a sack of grain met somebody with a sack of meat, there's been commerce. It's not going away. And that, does that mean you should just feel comfortable going out when you make $50,000 a year and your wife makes $24,000 part-time buying a $500,000 house because that's the trendy area and that's what everybody else is doing? No. No, it doesn't. But it does mean if you buy sensible... And you have enough cash in reserves to pay for that property for at least six months if you lose your income and, and get through that period of time that you are in pretty good shape and you'll probably be able to figure out how to keep it no matter what. That's what it means. And that's, that's, a, that's a hard reality there. And if you're doing a lot of the things that we're talking about on the show day to day by reducing your debt, reducing, so if the only debt's the house, all of a sudden this all gets easier. If you don't sit on $80,000 worth of student loan debt so long, you should call it a pet and give it a name. If you don't have three cars or two cars with mortgages on the cars equal to what you could have bought a house for. If you have two, if you have two cars that cost over $30,000, you could have bought a house for $60,000. Now, there's not a lot of great houses for $60,000. I'll admit that. I'm just saying you could have bought a house somewhere. I'll find you one. I don't care what state you live in. I will find you a $60,000 house that you could live in if you had to. I'm not saying you should. I'm not saying that's where you should set your budget. I'm just trying to put it in perspective for you. Because there's a lot of families out there saying they're dead broke, they can barely get by, it's tough to get along, and they have two cars that are $40,000 each. And they're paying off $80,000 on essentially a five-year mortgage against a declining, depreciating value in a vehicle. I'm just suggesting maybe that $80,000 would be better off applied to real property with better financing terms, lower interest rates, tax deductions, and all of those things, and drive a couple cheap cars. It might make more sense. And if you do it long enough and you want a nice car, then you can go out and buy a nice car. So you buy things with money, you finance things with debt. If you go out and get a car tomorrow, and you get a little book, and you have to make 60 payments of $450 each, you did not buy a car. You financed a car, and you financed an asset that will depreciate in value. Your home may go up in value, may go down in value, or may go sideways in value, but it may go up. And there's a lot of things you can do to force it to go up. Your car will go down in value. It is absolutely the financing of a depreciating asset. 
And everything else that we finance in this world is a depreciating asset. Even your college education. There, I said it, yes. You were thinking that's the one that goes up in value. No, it doesn't. It does. Your, your college education does not increase in value. You say, well, the person with a bachelor's degree and 10 years of experience is worth more than the person with a bachelor's degree. You are correct. Ding, ding, ding. But why? Is it because of the bachelor's degree or the 10 years of experience? The experience is the appreciating asset, which you're paid to acquire. The degree is the depreciating asset, because then we have some employers go, 10 years, eh? Bachelors, eh? Why didn't you ever go for your master's? And then, you want me to prove it's a depreciating asset? Get a bachelor's degree. Work outside of the field for five years. It will be harder for you to find a job many times in your field than the new graduate. The value of your degree has depreciated because you haven't added anything to it with experience. We're financing a depreciating asset. Financing a depreciating asset should be a last choice when it's deemed necessary, i.e., I drive 100 miles a day. I need a new car, not a used piece of crap. Can't afford to do that. But I'm going to buy a cheap new car with a good warranty, right? Or maybe even lease one because I'm going to see it as a business component of my income stream, not as a status symbol. And well, if I want a status symbol, then I have to earn that. But it's when we move into the world of homesteading that all of this stuff becomes much more enabled. If you can get yourself onto an acre, do it. An acre can do so much for you. To me, an acre, the, the American dream shouldn't be a two-tenths of an acre lot in a nice subdivision with a pool in the backyard, fences, and an HOA, and a bunch of neighbors that all look like they came from the Stefford Wives. That should not be the, that should be, today, that should be the American nightmare. If you're there, your entire life should be dedicated to extricating yourself from it at this time. Because that dream is about to become a nightmare for those people. They are not prepared for the shift in society that's coming. No, not everything's going away. No, not everybody will end up at the bottom. But, shifts are coming and a lot of people at the top are going to the middle. And a lot of people in the middle are going almost to the bottom. And if you're not prepared to adapt with it, the psychological aspects alone are going to be insurmountable. To me, the American dream is an acre. An acre to do with as you please. With an acre, I can put in a tenth of an acre garden, and I still have nine-tenths of an acre, less the footprint of the house, let's say eight-tenths of an acre. A tenth of an acre garden can grow more food than most people can process and deal with. Especially if you grow only the things that do well where you are. And you take the surplus and you use them for barter, exchange, and you know what? You don't always have to get something directly for your, your surplus in your community. If you can up more stuff than you can use or dehydrate more stuff than you can use, take it to your neighbors and give it to them. Don't worry about what comes back. Barter is for times of need. In the time of surplus, share. Because what you're going to get is interaction with that person and development of the community, which is what you really want anyway. People that you can depend on. People that you can rely on. People that will start asking questions so that you can answer them. right? But with, the, with an acre, I can do that. I can easily, easily run a, a, a flock of chickens. I mean, no worries, no problems. And I, yeah, it's probably better that I buy some feed instead of try to pasture 100% of a flock of laying hens like that. But, you know, I can buy a lot of seed to plant forage for them. And I can buy a lot of feed. And I can do that for a lot less than the cost of buying eggs at a store when I amateurize it over time. And a lot of what I do can be, you know, recycled. And that, that little, uh, uh, tub that I've built for black soldier fly that deals with all of the meat waste and things that I normally couldn't compost now is turned into, guess what? Black soldier fly larva, which is excellent feed for my chickens. So I can have that little flock of chickens that provides me more eggs than I can use and probably give away to a few neighbors. In a small little shed or something, I can put in some rabbits or some quail and produce some meat. Now, I got meat and I got eggs. And this is just an acre. I haven't even begun to use it yet. I can put in some, some perennial trees along fence lines strategically and distributed throughout. I can put in a tenth of an acre pond and grow fish on an acre. And, and at this point, with everything I've described, I still have more land left to work with than the average suburban lot. And the average suburban lot can produce a couple tons of food if managed properly. So I can add a couple more tons of food to that if I want to. You know, I mean, to me, that is what we should be striving for. That's, if I was developing 
subdivisions and communities, my minimum lot size would be an acre. And I would honestly prefer for it to be about an acre and a half. That gives everybody a good acre to manage and some buffer between their neighbors so they can start. And I'm not talking about a prepper community or survival community. I'm not about a resilient. I'm not talking about any damn thing here. I'm just talking about smart land development. I mean, that's the type of place people would want to live. You're spread out, but yet everybody can still see each other. Everybody can still interact with each other. Everybody can still help each other out. It's a great way to live. I live in a community just like this in Pennsylvania. Our home in Pennsylvania was on just over as like 1.03 acres or something like that. Everybody around us had somewhere between an acre and maybe three. Everybody knew each other. You walk around, everybody said hello to each other. It was a great community. It was a great place. There was one turd. There always seems to be a turd. If we could figure out how to get rid of the one turd in most neighborhoods, I think we could turn them around a big time just from that. But everybody should be homesteading. And if you say, well, I can't get an acre. That sounds great, but I just can't do it where I live and with whatever. One, be careful what you say you can't do because you might prove yourself right if you keep saying it long enough. If you start saying you can do it, you'll start saying, well, that doesn't make sense. I can do it, but I haven't done it yet. That must mean I haven't figured out how. And you might start asking the actual question, how do I do this? How do I get this done? How do I adapt to this? How? What do I have to sacrifice? Is it worth it? All of a sudden, you start. the mind gets engaged, you find a solution. But even if you end up with, you know what, I've got a quarter acre, that's what I got, fine. Homestead there. Do whatever you can. Well, I can't have chickens, fine. Put some quail in your garage. One guy that's going to be on the show in a couple months, or maybe a month from now, right? He raises thousands of quail in a one-car garage. The neighbor doesn't even know they're there. Figure out what you can do in homestead. Start producing for yourself. I mean, that's to get through what's coming, that's going to be so valuable. And let me tell you what's valuable about it. It's not just the direct return. It's not just the knowledge so you can do even more later. It's the knowledge that you'll be able to give to people when they realize they need it to. Because this whole country is going to collectively begin to wake up with some of the harsh reality that's coming. And the people that say, hey, look, let me show you how you can do this too. You know, here's a couple birds to start your own flock with. This is what they need. This is how to get, this is where to get food. This is what you can provide for them. This is what you have to get from somewhere else. This is, think of how valuable that is in a transitional society. And we're going to transition to a more agrarian society for a couple reasons. One, we're stressing the environment to a point where there's not enough resources to continue to do business as usual. And people want stuff. So they're going to adapt. So one of the ways you can adapt to reductions in supply is to provide some of your own so you have more of the stuff called money to buy what's still available and take pressure off the supply line system and pressure off your own financial system to acquire it. So that's one reason. But the other reason is... What you've seen collectively over the past 50 years is people turn their back on this type of thing with this constant yearning and looking over their shoulder going, hey, that was pretty cool. I remember when. And as you see people start to do it again, and there's people that love to be urbanites, right? And they're never going to change, and that's fine. But the majority of people, they're not really assholes. Again, like I said, they've been conditioned to behave like assholes. They don't really want bigger government. They've been conditioned to believe that they want bigger government. As you start to have more and more people kind of shine a liberty light around doing these things, more and more people start, you know what I get? The number, how did you do that? When people see my cards, how did you do that? Why, why does yours look so great? And, and this one here just blah, I just won't, you know, what, what's the secret? People want to know, because when you do it, it feels good. It's a natural human behavior to cultivate. We're cultivators by nature. We cultivate cultures. We cultivate fields. We cultivate forests. It's what we do. It's who we are. So, yeah, we're going to become more agrarian because it's what we really are. And this massive onslaught of technology has buried us from that. But we're starting to realize that, you know what, you only get so much of a fix from the latest technology or gadget. And, and then there's still something missing. And people are starting to really come back in a very positive way. And they're starting to bring the technology with them. And I'm not talking about GMOs here. I'm talking about ways to automate irrigation, ways to automate multiple things, ways to analyze things and know what's best to plant in what spot. Taking permaculture from some hippie ideal that it was in the 70s and today in 2013, it's an advanced design science that can be used to design an ecosystem or a business. It's going to happen because, because we're going to need it. 
because people like it. And I'll tell you the truth, the biggest reason it's going to happen, more and more people are figuring this out, as, as they apply modern thought to older techniques, it works better. It works better. About the only thing that the industrial ag can say today that they do well is grow about four different grains and great big fields with mechanical harvesting. There's nothing else they can say that they can even make a case using their own propaganda and lies that they do better. And sooner or later, we can mitigate even that. But there's a lot more to life than four different grains. And for now, we can focus on that. But everybody, I think, needs to be a homesteader. We need to build hard skills and soft skills and technical skills in everybody. Our kids should be coming out of high school today with more than just the ability to do their homework in a PowerPoint presentation. Every kid that comes out of high school today should be learning some basic database and PHP and things like that. Basic blogging skills, back-end stuff. Right? This, this is a new means of communication. Not knowing how to blog by 2025 will be like not knowing how to use a telephone in 1980. It, it, it's going to be that integral to what you're doing. Every person with a brand is going to have a blog. And, and it's almost there already, but people are going to start realizing you need a brand that don't know they need a brand yet. So we need that, but you still need to, right? You need to know how to do two times two, four plus seven, right? And, and you just went... Oh, I know that, right? I said two times two, and you said four. And I said four plus seven, and in your mind, you immediately said 11. You learned it 30 years ago. It's still there. That's what the, the, the hard skills need to be in us. Maybe I'm not out every day changing a tire, but I know how. Or know how to plug a tire, right? Or know the basics of how an engine works. Or how to start a fire. I mean, with a match, guys, I'm telling you, I'm, when we get to Texas... I'm finally going to do it. I know I'm going to deal with a million armchair ass cracks that are going, if you were a real survivalist, you'd be rubbing two sticks together. But I'm going to do a video on how to start a fire with a match. With a match. Because so many people don't know how. I'm talking grown men to teenage kids and Boy Scouts that I've seen try to start a fire. And you just look and you just look and you just wonder. Why Why are you doing that? Why, why are you putting a bunch of sticks in there that, yes, are thin, but yet when you bend them, they don't crack? You know, what, what, what's, why are you not following the process? And then, you know, they become convinced they need some kind of starter fluid or something, and you just start putting it together. And by the time they get back with whatever their plan was, you go, woof, right? It just roars up, and you start adding bigger, and all of a sudden it's burning. And they're like, wow, right? We need to know how to start a fire. Right? We need to know how to do all of these skills. That's, that's the, that's the big push behind 13 skills. Hard skills. With some technical skills as well. But we need soft skills. We need to know how to tell stories again. Do you realize that the number one thing, if you said to me, Jack, what's the number one thing that's made you successful with the survival podcast? I'd have a little bit different of an answer than I do with overall in life. Overall in life, it's when presented with the decision to do something or nothing, I always do something. And if I screw it up, oh well, I learned how not to do it and I just keep trying. I never get to a point in my life where I have an impasse and choose to not act. That would be the number one. But in the survival podcast, the number one thing that's made me successful with it, and that has made me an independent person that calls my own shots, is the ability to tell a story that people want to listen to. Now, if you had a kid that was six years old, And you said, what do you want to learn to do when you grow up? And they said, I want to be able to tell stories. Most adults would say, oh, that's nice, Johnny. You need to think about you know, having a professional career like being an engineer or something like that. Why? So you can work for somebody for the rest of your life? That person that tells stories could have a career like mine. They could have a career writing stories as an author. There's many things that they could do. There's just so much that can come from being able to tell a great story. Um, a screenplay writer, right? I mean, a novelist. And people say, well, there's not a great career in writing. There is for those who are gifted at it. And the person might have to fail as a storyteller four or five times to find their niche. But that doesn't mean that it's not a great life. It doesn't mean that it might actually not lead to something totally different. The, one of the reasons I was very successful as a salesperson when that was my lifestyle was I could tell stories and I could interact with people. I remember one guy that worked for a company called Graybar, big distributor, 
And we had always wanted to run as many events as we could with Graybar Counter Days and different, all kinds of stuff, right? And this guy never, never ran events. I mean, he was called the event Nazi by the sales reps that I went in with. They said, don't even bother. Just, you know, try to get a stocking order out of the guy or whatever. And we sit down and I look and on his table is a picture of his kids in a very small frame toward the back of his desk and very prominently displayed him playing with his Siberian Husky. The time I had Lakota, my Siberian Husky, who I dearly loved. And Siberian Huskies are unique dogs. They have unique characteristics, personalities, and things like that. And I knew we had that in common. So we started talking about it. And I told him stories about my dog. He told me stories about his dog. We talked for over 30 minutes. We never talked business. All we did was talk about the dogs. We were about ready to leave. And he said, hey, we didn't really get much done. It was good meeting you, though. What, is there anything I could do for you? And I said, you know, I, I understand you don't like to run events or anything, but I think it'd be really cool if we could do something here with your people to get them more informed, expose our brand to your customers, and make, every, make it something everybody can have a good time with. He said, get your guys to put something together and send it to me, and we'll do something. And we walked out, and the sales rep that I was with just stood there with just a gasp, going, I've tried to do this for 10 years. Nobody gets an event with it. This guy doesn't do this. He considers it a disruption. I said, that's because everybody comes in and talks business. I went in and talked about what mattered to him. And when he heard what mattered to him, he cared about what mattered to me. That's storytelling. That's why it's a skill that we need to develop as people, Right? We teach our children to not tell stories because it's fibbing. It's lying, right? And there's a place for that. I mean, you know, Johnny coming in and telling you the aliens took his homework, right? Actually, you prefer that because you know he's lying. That's much more believable than I forgot I had the assignment, right? So as long as Johnny's telling you the aliens ate his homework, we're in good shape because we can deal with that. But we don't want to teach our children to lie, but we don't want to drive the creativity and the creative process and the fantasy out of them Because the fantasy leads to stories that teach us more about reality than often reality itself will. And, you know, I, I think it's something that we really need to do holistically. I talked a lot about homesteading. Also, you might wonder, well, how does food storage fit into this perfectly? Perfectly. There are foods that you're not going to grow in your backyard, even on your beautiful one acre or beautiful ten acres in any quantity. Or if you do, they're going to take so much time and energy and resources it doesn't make sense. This would be things like wheat. Those of you that like bread and like wheat, wheat is cheap. You can go to Honeyville Grains right now and buy a 50-pound sack of wheat and have it shipped to your front door for about $48. And they'll do a flat rate shipping, and if you're an MSB member, they'll give you 10% off. Do you know how much wheat you have to grow, how much threshing you have to do, how much effort you have to do, how much ground you have to give up to produce a 50-pound sack of wheat? Don't grow wheat. If you want wheat, buy it. I would say in many instances the same thing about rice, but I think small-scale rice production in the right environment, like what Ben Falk does up in Vermont, can be really cool and really useful and produce a really high-quality product. But if you want it in volume, I'd still say buy it. There's a lot of things like that. And what food storage does is it brings the self-reliance component in touch with the self-sufficiency quotient. So if I have 50% self-sufficiency with food, only 50%, but I have self-reliance to go for six months with food, the two combined together give me not a year but a year and a half. And I'm not going to work out the math with you today, but if I can produce 50% of what I need, Throughout most of the year, with four-season gardening, using greenhouses, whatever i got to do to do it, 50% throughout the year, and I have a one-year supply of food, I end up with a year and a half to almost two years of self-sufficiency, depending on what I do, or, or self-reliance, depending on what I do. So they very much blend together, and this is true of everything we do with disaster preparedness, with energy. Right? I just did a show on this, but you know, food, shelter, water, energy security, and sanitation and health. Those all fit the same thing. Whatever we're storing or building up or creating the skill sets to be able to provide for ourselves in those arenas, they all interlock. The problem with most Americans, with most developed countries today, and even undeveloped countries, is people have lost this concept of building a net versus a line. Most people run their entire lifestyle as a single fishing line. You got A connected to B connected to C in a linear format. And if any one of those places break, the whole thing falls apart. 
It's all contingent upon dad keeping his job. Dad loses his job, everything falls, not just one or two things. Where if you start to build this as an interweb, A is connected to B, C, D, F, and E, right? And E is connected to G, H, I, J, K, and L. And L is connected back, see, like that. When you start to build these interconnections, so we have storage of this, storage of that, a plan for this, a plan for that, the ability to produce this, the ability to produce that, the ability to barter for this, a neighbor that does that other thing. We can work, do this type of work, and our neighbor can do that type of work, and we can exchange that. We start to build our lives that way, and one string breaks, we go, yeah, I've got to mend the net. I'm not happy about the hole in the net, but it's one string or two strings. Or I can have a net with four or five strings, and I can still catch a buttload of fish with it. That's the way we need to be building our lives in the modern age. Integrating technology, accepting the fact that the modern person has become an idiot that wants bigger government, and saying we have to define for ourselves what we want, find the area and environment conducive to as much of that as possible, and build our lives there, and start practicing it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. If there's something we want to do, we need to go ahead and do it, and then if anybody comes after us for it, try to defend that, it's easier than going out and asking permission to do it first. And that's kind of what I want to finish up with today is I believe that in some areas it's time for us to go on the offensive and maybe not in some others that we don't need to be in people's face with everything that we want done, but it's time for us to stop just, you know, putting in a garden and then defending somebody's ability to tell us we have to take it away because it's in a front yard and somebody doesn't like it. It's time for us to stop with the Second Amendment just saying that, hey, we don't want any more gun laws. Maybe it's time to start out and go out and start repealing some that it's time in some areas for us to say, you know what, we've had enough of this shit, we're not taking it anymore. That maybe we need to be dividing the enemy in some level so that it's not always they're attacking and we're defending. We need to start going around and do some flanking maneuvers and fighting back. We need to start looking for more, uh, more you know, especially at the local and state level, food sovereignty. Right, The right of, of, of the farmers in our state, not just the homestead in our state, but the farmer in our state, to conduct business in certain ways and not be interfered with by corporate interests. We need to take this fight right straight down the throat of the very people bringing it at us. We've been taking this shit for over a 100 years, and I'm frankly tired of it. And on one level, we can be peaceable and we can build these little pockets in our own lives, but collectively, we need to start returning fire here. And if we do that balanced approach, we'll start to build a better society. But that's the long, that's why I'm only just talking about this a little bit at the end today. That's the long-term horizon goal. That's, that's what we want to achieve on a grand scale. But the focus needs to be the individual and community layer. That's where we need to be building this stuff. And I want you to take away from today this concept. Society is evolving. Technology is evolving. We're moving forward. We're not going to move backwards. It's, that's just a fundamental fact in human history. Even in the, the collapsed scenarios in our history, society continued to evolve forward. For every step back, there was 20 steps forward, and that's going to continue. We need to embrace the good, fight the bad, and adapt to the things that we cannot change. That's the way to build as most self-sufficiency and self-reliance as possible as we can into our lives as we move forward. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. Like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
Show you.